a new episode of This Week in the CLE, one where we will talk about such weighty issues as the death penalty and the continuing crisis at the Cuyahoga County Jail, and some not-so-weighty issues like having front license plates on cars and whether it's wrong to feed stray cats. This Week in the CLE is a discussion and analysis of the week's news by the reporters and editors of Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of Cleveland.com, and I'm with criminal justice editor Chris Wernowski, politics editor Jane Cahoon, public impact editor Mark Bosberg, and reporter Courtney Astolfi. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. Let's start with something seemingly inane, but for which everyone seems to have an opinion, and that is whether Ohio should require front license plates. We have for a long time, but transportation budget passed earlier this year gets rid of them. But before we can even get them off of our cars, some legislators, law enforcement people, and the governor are working to restore the requirement. Jane, how can the governor advocate for this when he just signed a bill that killed the front license plate? Well, the governor says he he has always favored the front license plate requirement. Um, but you may recall the lawmakers blew past their deadline on the transportation budget, just like they did on the operating budget. And negotiations were delicate, and they finally reached an agreement, and the governor really felt like he needed to sign it, recognizing that this front license plate requirement wouldn't take effect until um, next year, July. So he figured there was time to have a deeper discussion of this. And in fact, now, you know, these lawmakers have come forward with a bill that would uh, bring back that requirement. Who's on both sides of this issue? Who's against it? Who's for it? So people like car dealers and car enthusiasts do not want the front license plate requirement. Um, They say it's cumbersome and, you know, there's a lot of technology in the front bumpers of cars now and it it just makes it a hassle. And um, on the other side is is law enforcement. They say this is really crucial to uh, catching suspects. They've got these license plate scanners that they use that they can, um, you know, read the plates and, and catch parking yes, tickets, scoff and, laws. and also like if you're getting into a lift you know you can you'd be able to see the the front license plate when the car pulls up um so yeah it's a law enforcement issue what does everybody think does anybody care i mean i lived in florida they didn't have front license plates and i'm pretty sure police managed to do their jobs and the collective world didn't end uh i i, I don't see the harm in doing it the harm i see in doing it is getting rid of one license plate and still charging the same amount for a plate, <laughs> which I, I believe is probably the case here. And it's 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 a money grab of a different sort. But uh, you do raise a good point, right? Because the states that don't have it don't seem to have the problems that law enforcement here is predicting will have once we get rid of them. Florida doesn't have problems catching fugitives, right? So, so anybody else have a strong feeling about this? Not really. All right. <laughs> we don't want to say. On to the much meatier issue of the 2020 presidential election. The 2016 election taught us all kinds of things about the state of our nation. And one of the key lessons that it is not the nation's coast or the South or the West that determines the winner. It's the heartland. That's Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, and Indiana. That's the region that coastal elites so condescendingly refer to as flyover country. And this week, Jane, we here at Cleveland.com decided to wear that name as a badge of honor. Let's talk about what we launched. 
We launched a newsletter called The Flyover. We're going to wear that label proudly. And um, it is a uh, five-day-a-week, weekday uh, email newsletter that will land in your mailbox bright and early. It's free to subscribe to it. And um, it is going to focus on the issues for 2020 that really matter to people in the heartland. So you're the coordinator of our capital letter newsletter. It's that covers the state house and just Ohio politics. And you can sign that sign up for free at cleveland.com slash newsletters. The model of that is what we're using for the flyover. It's the, the kind of concise, somewhat cheeky news updates in the voice, in this case of uh, Seth Richardson. But we hope to do a lot more with the flyover brand. I mean, it, we, we learned a little bit last night when they the, or this week as the presidential candidates debated in Detroit. They didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the issues. They didn't even mention the the Great Lakes. So, what what is the goal of the flyover with regard to this region's identity? Well, the goal is to build on that shared identity and to bring these issues um, to a central place and get the candidates to address them. I mean, you you can look at the 2016 results and see uh, how important this area is to winning a presidential election. Um, so we're talking about also uh, a podcast and maybe a video series, and we, we really want to build on this. The trick is, is, is trying to get that unified voice. What do people care about? I mean, it's you know, people here talk about immigration because the president talks about immigration nonstop. But but absent that, probably immigration would not rank high in what people think about. We know they care a great deal about health care. We know people care about the Great Lakes. And yet the candidates aren't talking <laughs> about it. And so how do we how do we force that? Uh, you know, that's that's kind of one of the goals here. Right. We hope this is a vehicle for that. We had a surprise this week when Cuyahoga County Sheriff Cliff Pinckney showed up for a hearing at the Cuyahoga County Council and actually answered questions. He had refused to do so earlier, which resulted in the council issuing its first ever subpoena. Courtney, the sheriff seemed to throw people under just about every bus in seven counties. What were the key points he made? Yeah, I think there were a lot of important takeaways from the testimony this week, even though we didn't get some answers on some crucial questions about the deaths at the county jail, we did learn that the sheriff, he told counsel that he was not part of major decision making, some major decisions at the jail in the past few years, namely the decision to bring on Cleveland police arrest suspects, um, the decision to take on the Bedford Heights jail. He said he wasn't, he wasn't the decision maker who decided to bring on Ken Mills as jail director. And, um, he also said that Mills overrode essentially his approval to bring more nurses into the facility. Doesn't that make the sheriff a doofus? I mean, it's his job to run the jail, right? Statutorily, the state law says he's the guy in charge of the jail, and he's sitting before the council this week saying, yeah, I didn't do any of those things. I mean, was did the council look at him and say, well, why the hell didn't you? It's your job. It felt like there was a sense of that going on. If anything, it's, I think if anything, it was troubling. If, if his hand isn't on the wheel, who, who's guiding the jail? But, but, it, but I get half of this is very troubling, right? If, if he's telling the truth and the administration of Armand Budish X'd him out, 
you know, he's the sheriff. He's supposed to be running the jail, and they maneuvered to stop him. That's bad, and and the county council should weigh in heavily with ways to um, to stop that. But on the other hand, he's the sheriff. Shouldn't he have been insisting on a role? And if he was blocked from doing his job, didn't he have recourse to 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 bring that to the fore? I mean, if he went to Dan Brady and said, "Look, I'm the sheriff. The jail's collapsing." And I can't do anything about it. You ought to have a hearing about this. You presume Dan Brady would have said, sure, I'll have a hearing about this. The jail is collapsing. But there was none of that. That's what counsel seemed to be critical. You know, they asked, why didn't you bring this to us in a, in a public forum during a meeting? He said he spoke to some members of counsel privately. He said he spoke to, you know, the former chief of staff and people on the administration side. But I, there was definitely a sense of, why the heck didn't you bring this to us sooner? There's also no paper record, right? There's nothing that he has that actually proves anything he says. I mean, it, it, was there anything he said that you heard that is demonstrably false? Ooh, that's a big question. I'd kind of have to go through it piece by piece. There are some things that I, just from being involved with this for so long, doubt, but I'd have to look into it to know further. Right. The administration of Armin Budish looks terrible in, in retrospect with what he had to say, um, if what he's saying is true, which it's hard to tell. Have they come out to uh, respond to anything the sheriff said? Have you called them for a comment? Did they give you anything? Yeah, I was told after the meeting that by a spokesperson that no, they're not going to have anything to say. I called um, Executive Budish's cell phone. He didn't give me a call back. I there's just so no response here. So they'll just accept looking bad. Is there is there maybe a reason why he isn't willing to speak publicly about things like this, including an investigation that is still ongoing? Oh, sure. I mean, that's that's been a thought on all sides here. Council, Sheriff, Budish's administration, they're worried about the county, how much the county is going to have to pay out in civil lawsuits for all these deaths. And no one really knows where the criminal investigation is going at the moment. All right, staying with the Cliff Pinckney theme, Chris, your team had a story this week about how he appears to have reneged on a promise of an investigation involving the former warden. What's that about? The investigation into the former warden into Eric Ivey? Yeah. Yeah, that issue came up uh, during – we met with them the day that this report came out about the jail, the U.S. Marshal's report. The devastating report about the very devastating report that called the jail, among other things, inhumane and and really called into question Ivy's uh, administration of the jail. There's, you know, there's stuff in there about him ordering COs to withhold food as punishment and just a, a lot of general, you know, very sort of vicious buffoonery that was going on in there and just total mismanagement. Um, when we came in, when the sheriff came in, you know, I, I remember specifically him being asked, you know, would, would you forward this investigation to another part of the county to look at Ivy's behavior? And emphatically, he answered the question that he would. Um, unfortunately, uh, according to, you know, the story that we wrote this week, that never happened. And, and, and so, you know, Ivy Ivy was then demoted for something completely unrelated. It was a, a I believe it was an issue involving supervising his wife, um, and and not, nothing nothing ever 
nothing ever came of it. So the sheriff is done. He's retired as of Friday of this week. So it looks like that investigation probably will never happen. We'll never get an answer. Probably not. But I mean, look, it's, you know, Ivy has been charged with crimes. So it's, you know, maybe something will come out in the wash. I don't know. Courtney? Um, that story published right before Pinkney took the stand for his testimony and Council President Brand- Dan Brady like asked him specifically about this. He said he referred it to HR. We haven't seen paperwork or anything that way, but that day that they came in, Ivy was so clearly a huge problem in the first initial readings of that report. Well, he hadn't read the report when he came in. Pinkney had were, not, no. Yeah. He, he had, we had asked him and he said that he was... I think he said he did not get a copy of it or I, I don't remember it. I mean, but we had all read it right. <laughs> and, multiple and so times we explained to him point. in very yeah. in great detail what his warden was doing under his administration. And, and I think, you know, the issue that she brings up with Bray, you know, with his answer yesterday when he or, or Wednesday when he was talking to the county council, it's look, if, if he's right and he did forward it to human resources and the county is telling us it was it it's it's clear that regardless of of who's at fault here there's a huge institutional problem there of the right hand not knowing what the left hand is doing and and the fact that you can't get a clear-cut answer about what the heck happened that's that says something about our entire county government as a whole yeah, Chris, the jail administration also was in the news because a judge was threatening to hold them in contempt of court this week. What's the, the deal with this that? This was wild. Like, I, like, this story came as a huge shock to me, but uh, the administrative judge sent a letter basically saying your, your corrections officers are just not bringing people to court hearings and then blaming it on the people, like the defendants. And, and it's causing you know, backlogs and delays of an already backed up and delayed legal system that we have here. And so Judge Russo, you know, in the letter said, you know, I will throw it. Maybe it'll take throwing one CO in jail to make this problem go away. And of course, you know, you have the union that oversees the COs. They, you know, they're saying, well, you know, you have inmates who are not cooperative and it's this and this and this, but you know, something happened that this has clearly become an issue with the corrections officers. Yeah, the, the, what hit me about this is that, that when you're in jail, you're, you're, you're not really don't have the freedom to refuse to do things, right? right. You're, you're in the control. So if, uh, if a jail guard comes to you and says, it's time to transport you, mm-hmm. I didn't think the inmates had the ability to say, no, I'm not going because you're in the custody of these folks. And look, this is just speaking for me personally, who will never be in that jail. But from what I've heard about that jail, I would take every opportunity <laughs> to not be in that jail. <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> All right. Mark Bosberg, you're on the editorial board, as am I. And the board did something this week that it almost never, ever does, which was to come out against the tax increase. Before we get into why, let's talk about the what. The tax we opposed is for? It's a tax imposed on people who stay in hotels and motels in the county. It's commonly referred to as the bed tax. Uh, and there's a proposal to increase that tax by one percentage point to 17.5%, which would make it one of the highest in the country. Now, as taxes go, the hotel bed tax is one of the least egregious for taxpayers who live here because they don't pay it. It hits visitors. 
But the board opted to oppose this one on principle. What's the principle we're talking about? The principle is that we believe these taxes, and we have a lot of them, should not be uh, evaluated on a case-by-case basis, that we should develop an overall comprehensive strategy for funding these various things. Uh, the, The bed tax, for instance, would help pay for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions, which we now host every other year. Uh, I, our editorial mentioned the funding uh, Cleveland Hopkins Airport, which is owned by the city, but the city really couldn't uh, afford to uh, level the place and start over, which probably needs to be done. So we are calling on uh, the community, our leaders, to, before they uh, develop, uh, to develop a comprehensive uh, strategy, perhaps a regional, a broader regional strategy before acting on the bed tax. Right. There's a bunch of um, conversations that happen to be taking place right now with an eye on 2030. How does Cleveland get there? And those conversations have included some talk like this that 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 this is this is needed. One of the triggers, though, for the editorial is this money is also uh, partly dedicated to sports stadiums, and that's that's where you get into the idea of regional. Cleveland and Cuyahoga County always foot the bill for this stuff, and yet you know many counties send people there. Why doesn't Ohio have a funding mechanism where you can tax? all of the users instead of forcing one area to pay the whole bill. That's right. Yeah. So we'll have to see. I mean, it sounds like county council probably will just raise the bed tax, <clears throat> which we knew, um, but but it's it was kind of time to draw the line in the sand. And look, we're not alone, right? Because the Greater Cleveland Partnership came out earlier this they year, did. said the exact same thing. Armin Budish, who, who would have to deal with this tax, he himself said, yes, we need comprehensive rethinking of taxation, and then the bed tax shows up on the agenda. Right. But we we have called on them to step to the plate now and back up their talk with action. Yeah, it'll be interesting so. to see what they do. Governor Mike DeWine has been a bit cryptic about his thoughts on the death penalty. He certainly has shown no rush to use, rush to use it. Ohio's hurdle to executing people has been getting drugs to make the various concoctions that can kill by lethal injection, and that means all executions have been on hold. This week, DeWine offered a statement on what Ohio might do to return to executions, but even in that, he was a bit cryptic, Jane. Yes, he... Um He is asking lawmakers to explore alternative methods of execution because of the difficulty in obtaining these drugs. And um, he's not being specific about what the alternatives are. He says he doesn't want to affect any pending death penalty cases. You know, but it's interesting that he didn't make a recommendation on the alternative. We talk about the governor's absolute opposition to abortion, which he considers part of his religious beliefs. But he's that rare politician, it seems, whose religious beliefs can have him standing counter to his party. His delays and hard-to-read thoughts on the death penalty feel like they reflect his religious beliefs. It seems like he's troubled by this. We've wondered whether anyone will be executed in his time. Do you feel like what he said this week offers any clarity on that? I actually do. Um, I think 
And obviously, I can't get into his brain or his heart, but I feel like he's a law and order guy through and through, and he's going to follow the law, and he might even believe in the law. That's just my feeling. But the law does allow him to not schedule executions. I mean, he's not required by law to execute people. So so right. if he delayed them till the next guy. Right. And uh, in fact, just this week, he delayed the next execution while this plays out. While this plays out. Can I, can I pose a question here? There's, I mean, we just saw also in, in recent weeks that the federal government has resumed uh, executing people for the first time since the early 2000s. And I mean, do you think that he that DeWine is 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 concerned that this very red meat issue for conservative voters is going to be, you know, an issue come the presidential election in, in 2020 and, and whether that would have any impact on on, you know, statewide elections or, you know, how Ohio, Ohio turns out at the polls? That that could be because in in addition to being a law and order guy, he's a politician through and through as well. So I I would not be surprised if that was playing into this. Well, that's two real. That's we're painting two very different <laughs> pictures here. On the one side, we've got this guy who's a serious religious guy who may be troubled in his soul about you know taking people's lives because it runs counter to his religion on the other side we're saying is he just this cynical guy that's going to use his job i did not mean to imply that no not at all just that you know it you you can't just ignore that but either one could be true it's a it's a fascinating debate on what's driving him and again he's been a bit cryptic about this I, i also don't think maybe he's as troubled about this as as you think he is. I don't know. That's just my feeling. (laughs) All right. Chris, you supervised our intern this summer, Ben Peters, and his final story for us involved the growing unease of bicyclists who share the road with distracted drivers. We've all seen reports of bikers killed by drivers who are not paying attention or inebriated. What was the gist of Ben's story? Um, Ben spoke to a lot of local bike folks who are, you know, I I don't know if, if, things are better or worse i but i think you're starting to see a growing contingency of people who want to ride and who still don't feel that motorists in northeast ohio still really understand how to share the road with with bicyclists i i think you know one thing he didn't touch on is sometimes the the bicyclists can also be irresponsible you know by by riding on sidewalks and by you know, not following traffic rules. Um, but, but, but for the most part, you know, we've seen, we've seen over the past few weeks and months, you know, a, a handful of really bad incidents of people getting injured or killed on bikes. And, you know, and I think that, it, it, you know, everybody sort of pays lip service to the idea that we want to become the kind of community where people can bike to work and where people can, can use alternative modes of transportation. But, but when it comes down to it, you also have to sort of prepare the people they're sharing the road with on how how the laws work and how they're supposed to treat cyclists when they approach them in a car. Lots of cities are grappling with this. Did did Ben get a feel for where Cleveland and Northeast Ohio stand? Are we ahead of the curve, or is it more likely we're pretty far behind the curve? I don't know that we're. I don't know that we're any better or worse than any community of our size. I think you know. I, I think the. I think what hampers. Northeast Ohio a little bit is the fact that our communities are so fragmented. And so, you know, while stuff like this might be a priority to a place like Lakewood, 
that has a really robust biking community, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean neighboring communities consider it as the similar priority. So, you know, when you have one long road like Lake Avenue that shares, that touches many, many communities, you know, when you, when you start talking about putting bike lanes in, you're only talking about putting it into part of that community. So, so, you know, it's, we have these weird roads where bike lanes just kind of stop and, 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 you know, and it's, you know, you have to understand like a lot of motorists aren't used to that, especially a lot of older motorists, you know, it's, you know, and I look, I personally saw, I've seen, bike side swipe mirrors and guys get out of the car and then rumbling. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, it gets testy and, and, you know, it's, you got to remember like everybody just wants to, you know, survive their commute to work and you, you need to slow down and just, you know, be polite. Yeah. The, the thing that kind of struck me was the, the hostility that seems to be growing. Jane, could I just say one thing on behalf of older people? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we so many um people are distracted by their phones and they might not be of the older generation this is a problem with the younger generation as well um and that's what puts the fear into me i'm one of those people who's kind of afraid to ride now yeah yeah me too chris you handled the talker story of the week the jail sentence given to a woman for feeding stray cats seems draconian what happened here yeah, so a wo- a woman in Garfield Heights, uh, Garfield cat, I don't know. It's the uh, she <laughs> she got cited. She got sentenced to ten days in jail for feeding stray cats. Now, on the surface, it seems like an awful thing, but it turns out she had been warned three times uh, before this. She'd been fined. She told us that she had been fined almost two thousand dollars for feeding stray cats. Now, I'm not saying that. The fact that she did it four times means she should go to jail. I, it's just, it's what struck me about this story is, is a, it just seems like an absurd sentence for for somebody in that position, especially somebody of her age and and somebody who is in this jail. You know all in this jail. Like, why would you send somebody like for this to this jail? And and. And and what struck me about this is is her story was that she lost her husband, she lost her two cats right all around the same time, and you know it's it's a lonely woman. And what's weird to me is that it just it seemed it seemed overkill. Look, two things. I mean, if you live in that neighborhood and you've got stray cats running all over the place, and she's feeding them, and it's getting worse and worse, and you're going through the authorities, I would understand the frustration. But I thought we were in an era. Uh, particularly based on what happened in Cleveland, where law enforcement, the courts, were paying much more attention to mental illness and mental distress. And you would have thought that rather than use the law and order hammer to pound this woman, that people would sit back, understand what you just said about Mm -hmm. her distress, and try and find ways to work with her. Clearly, she's troubled. She talks about it, how Mm -hmm. much she misses them. Why? Where is that mental health part that's supposed to be part of the treatment now? Weird. And, and look, I don't want to downplay how serious an issue that like feral cat colonies are. I mean, that is, a, you know, if you've ever lived around one or if you've ever 
like I've had to cover them several times as a reporter and, and, and they do pose some public health problems and, and I don't want to downplay that. And there, there are ways to deal with that. I think the most humane way is to capture, to trap them, get them spayed or neutered. So they stop breeding and, and, you know, and try to get a handle on what can become very quickly a very large population of cats. I think what troubles me about this is is the fact that it seemed to become a law enforcement problem very quickly. You know, it's you know, I, I and and again, I I don't know what the what you know if if her neighbors ever approached her and spoke to her about this before they went to the police, but this seems like a thing that as as we become less and less community oriented, that going back to a sense of understanding your neighbors, knowing your neighbors. There would be a little bit of empathy there where where people would say, okay, this is somebody who needs our help. How can we help her instead of making it a police problem right off the bat? You know, there's, you know, it's, there's some value to, into knowing people and, you know, somebody could have bought her a cat. It's not hard to get a cat. You know, I mean, you know, there's, there's so many other ways that this story could have played out and it's, and look, and this is, you know, this is a seemingly benign issue here where, you know, it's cats and a woman, but, you know, this issue of, you know, immediately just calling the police on somebody who's in the throes of a mental breakdown, you know, we've seen that in, in death and, and, and it, it's, you know, that shouldn't be your first reflex. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll talk in a moment about Parma facing the music for criminalizing social media satire. Everyone has their favorite writer at Cleveland.com, and now you can get a bit closer to them through Cleveland.com's Project Text. Each weekday, they will send you a text message about what they are thinking as they go about their reporting. It's a unique way of engaging with Mary Kay Cabot as she covers the Browns, Doug Maurice as he thinks about Ohio State University, Corey Schaefer as he shares insights about the Justice Center, and many more. There's a small fee, which we use to support our journalism. Check it out at Cleveland.com slash Project Text. We're back on This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of Northeast Ohio News. I'm Chris Quinn with Jane Cahoon, Courtney Estolfi, and in this segment, reporters Bob Higgs and Eric Heisig. Let's start with Eric, who covers federal courts, where the city of Parma is defending itself for how it treated someone who spoofed it on social media. Eric, what did this satirist do that so angered the city of Parma? The satirist decided to take it upon himself to make a Facebook page for the Parma Police Department. You know, from the outward view, it looked pretty real. It, you look at it, it really wasn't. So it was basically a parody of the uh, Parma Facebook or Parma Police's Facebook account. And so he was charged with a crime for this? That seemed a little over the top. Right. So this all happened actually a few years ago. He was charged with a crime in um, state court. A jury found him not guilty of it was a fourth degree felony and um essentially he sued after said you know you guys retaliated against me you took uh you basically took action against me because i i exercised my free speech rights and you didn't like it that's the crux of a lawsuit he's filed and they've been litigating it ever since well what what happened to the criminal charges he basically, after the Parma police ended up investigating him, getting a series of search warrants, and in 2016, he was indicted, and that case went in front of a jury. That jury subsequently found him not guilty of disrupting public service. There was trial during the testimony that talked about, I believe, for all the uh, the problems that the Parma police said such a Facebook page would create, uh, it, I believe it resulted in about 12 minutes worth of phone calls total. And, and this was in common police court, so the county prosecutor actually took this case? Yes. 
And they lost. And they lost. And so now he's come back saying, basically, you you violated my civil rights and you're going to pay me. Yes. Parma police, uh, you know, shouldn't have done this, according to him. And he's really just trying to, you know, I believe he actually went on Facebook and said he would settle for a lifetime supply of back rubs from the Parma police department. But yes, he is looking for some compensation to right what he saw as a wrong. And they maneuvered to try and get this tossed and failed. This is going forward. Right. So this has been pending, I believe, since 2017. This lawsuit, this current one, in 2018, a federal judge here in Cleveland uh, denied mostly a motion to dismiss, a little procedural uh, in federal court. This week, the Sixth Circuit, you know, in an even more animated opinion, said, no, this case should be going forward and we should litigate this. I, I imagine that if this gets closer to a trial, this will get settled. Bob? What's kind of stunning to me about this whole case is we have a history in this country rich in the idea that you can criticize your government and parody has historically been one of the most commonly used forms of that criticism and i'm sort of surprised that a prosecutor picked this up and and ran with it because just looking at the page it should become obvious that it's not real. Yeah, that that was the kind of the surprise. You're not you're not surprised that Parma would lack a sense of humor and may start to do something, but the fact that the county prosecutor actually took this case to trial instead of sitting back saying, "Okay, this is not what we're here for," um, and and then losing like they did was kind of the proof that that it was a bad case. In another court, a top official, the regional transit authority, is facing the music too. He's been charged with crimes involving benefits he received there. Courtney, who is it and what is he accused of? Yeah, former uh, board president George Dixon. He's accused of theft in office for health care premiums he, he received services for and didn't pay. And didn't pay. He's accused of, of doing that between 2010 and 2018. But um, it, it sounds like the investigation's still ongoing in other facets yeah, of RTA. He was charged with an information, not by indictment, which generally means that they're cooperating. Should we interpret that to mean that Dixon is helping prosecutors with other cases that we don't know about yet? Yeah, an assistant prosecutor told reporter Corey Schaefer this week that that he is cooperating in other RTA investigations. Obviously didn't say what or who those investigations are about, but the criminal information charge, that tells us he's probably cooperating. All right. Speaking of RTA, you covered a meeting this week in which they announced some plans to add buses if needed to their popular routes, but there's a catch having to do with money. Yeah, not quite. So so this meeting was in the course of RTA's like planning for its 10-year strategic plan. And throughout this year, they've been putting out surveys to the community, asking them, where do you want RTA to go in the future? So in going over some of these survey results at a community forum, RTA kind of hinted at where they're starting to lean. There's still more surveys coming, so no decisions have been made. But um, they basically said that if funding stays the same as it is now at the cash-strapped agency, um, they would keep – basically they described it, RTA's focus now is – it splits its routes almost evenly with a focus of high coverage high coverage areas in the county, meaning they try and get buses to every community. So at least like maybe once an hour, far-flung communities at least have public transit. And then the other side of that split is clustering services where the densest populations are. And that's a way 
the folks said this past week to really boost ridership and to, 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 to get more people on board. So the discussion that you're referring to was if fund, if funding does come in and if funding is increased, they would like to focus their resources more on those high density routes rather than spreading out to those far flung areas without service. All right. Let's keep talking about money. Let's talk about tax cuts that are supposed to give us more money in our pockets. Jane, you worked with the vacationing Rich Exner on a story analyzing whether the ultimate result of recent decisions in the legislature are cutting the overall taxes of Ohioans or actually not. The finding is that for people who don't make a lot of money, the tax bill is actually rising. How is that? This is so interesting because, you know, a, a core part of the state operating budget you know, was the tax cuts, the 4% income tax cuts that the legislature very much wanted to give. Well, Rich, who's great at this stuff, uh, took a deeper look at all of this um, and uh, took into consideration that the legislature also passed a transportation budget earlier in the year that raised the gas tax. So, um, it's really easy. You can go to cleveland.com slash data central and see um, how he determined uh, that, well, you know, with the income tax, the richer you are, the more money you make, the more you save. So uh, richer people are, you know, that gas tax increase probably will be offset by um, by what they're saving in income taxes. But the people basically in the middle um, – you know, they, they're going to, to pay more. So Rich's analysis, which I said you can find at cleveland.com slash data central, you can go there. He's got these charts. You can put it, you can see, okay, how much you drive, how many miles per gallon you get and figure out what the gas tax is going to cost you. And then you can look at the chart with your income and see how much you're going to save. And then you'll know whether you're going to pay more or not. What's interesting about this is that when, when they raised the gas tax, it was by a stagger, staggering percentage, right? And Republicans, it was, no sooner had the, the new administration come in where they're raising a tax by a big percentage. And it seemed like when the immediate talk about cutting income taxes in the budget was trying to cover for that. Yeah, we raised the gas tax, but let's reduce income tax. Um, but but in the end, the the people that that helped really weren't the voters that they really had to worry about. It's it's more the middle-class voter that I think they were worried about with the tax cut, and, it, and now they haven't really helped them. I mean, it's in the end, they're raising their gas tax. They're not cutting their income taxes by as much. And so when it comes time for re-elections, you could see this being part of the, the Democratic platforms as, hey, they're costing you more money, and they're supposed to be the Republicans. Right. They definitely could make that point. All right. Bob Higgs, you cover Cleveland City Hall, and I laughed out loud at a story you wrote this week about uh, some guys who claim that the development of a city park amounted to the taking of their land because it blocked access to it. What I found funny was that the city claimed that it had taken the correct legal steps to do that, but it couldn't find any of the paperwork to prove it. So break this down. Where is the land, and how did the park block access to it? The land is across from Progressive Field. It's If you walk out of the ballpark at the Ontario and Lorraine and Carnegie intersection there behind home plate across Ontario is this little park. And it used to be that there was a side street 
called Old Ontario that ran through there. What's now Ontario used to be called Broadway, and at some point they realigned the streets, uh, part of the Interbelt um, Bridge Replacement Project. And these guys have parcels that were on Old Ontario. And you can't really see them from the street level because the the top end of the hill there is about where their property line is. And then they run down the hill into the lower level across the RTA tracks all the way down Canal Street, I think, is the street at the bottom there. But you can't get up to their property from Canal because RTA has its right-of-way through there and all their tracks run through there. So, so the, the the way you got access was through that old street. Right, through that old Ontario street. Which the city says it abandoned. The city doesn't say it abandoned, but it denies that it did anything wrong here. And at some point, though, the street was removed. If you go and look at the park, you can see where the street used to be because now it's this nice walkway with paver stones and uh, uh, benches and large grassy areas and there's no no semblance of an old street there anymore and so they're arguing we can't get to a street anymore if we want to develop our property and at first blush it looks undevelopable but they what they're talking about is building up out of the hillside and maybe perching a hotel there right across from the ballpark or residential units across from the ballpark and now they can't provide parking or entrance to the building even but but the city is claiming it didn't do anything wrong but it can't provide anything to show that it even took into consideration the access to these pieces of land right that this week the city filed its response to the the landowner's lawsuit and it's six pages long systematically goes paragraph by paragraph denying every allegation without actually saying much of anything but the part that got my attention was they refer to a public records request that the plaintiffs made saying, we want evidence that you did eminent domain or you vacated the street. And the city says, we don't dispute that we replied to this request for records. We think it speaks for itself. Well, their answer was, we've gone through all our files and we can't find anything responsive to your request. And how much could this cost the city if they lose? Was it, was it number four or six million or something? Uh, the, the landowners say the property value is worth about four and a half million. And if, if they're denied the ability to develop it and have lost that value, there's that. And then they want six and a half million in punitive damages because the city they contend, acted very improperly, basically just took their property away. Eric. And, Bob, this was years ago. I mean, I think it was more than two decades ago, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this is not excusing anybody for you know losing any documents, whether they should or shouldn't have. I'm not passing judgment. What I'm interested, though, is you know, from a record-keeping perspective, especially on issues like this, I mean, is there a, a good practice the city, you know, acknowledges they should follow to actually make sure they have this kind of documentation when stuff like this arises? Well, all one in the background of all this is Cleveland has a notorious record for responding to public records requests. Uh, but they responded to this one. They, they did respond to this anything. one. But I've gotten that same answer before for documents that I know exist uh i've been waiting for records from the airport and i've even given them the date their letter was sent to the city and who sent it and who it was sent to i'm sorry we have no records responsive to that request um and it does go back sometime the people who involve the the property now is owned by uh, a corporation but the original owners of it picked it up 
uh, about two decades ago, and over time it was consolidated. But we're talking about a project on the bridge that ended in 2016. So those documents are only a few years old and should exist. Okay. Jane, this one's a few days old, but it's worth talking about. Quinnipiac released an issues poll that showed some surprising strength of feeling in Ohio about the heartbeat bill and background checks for gun buyers. In which direction were people feeling strongly? Well, um, on the heartbeat bill, which is the um, abortion ban when a fetal heartbeat can be detected, uh, Ohioans opposed it overall, 52 to 39, which I think is stronger than we've seen in other recent polling where it's been more evenly split. Um, and that doesn't mean that, that Ohio has changed its feeling about abortion, but this is about the specific. This would almost be an outright ban on abortion. Correct. And Ohioans don't seem to be in favor of that. Right. But they also... Um, it was a 61-32 support for Roe v. Wade. Right. So, um, you know, I'm not sure what to, to make of all that, but it was, it was quite interesting. As I said, I think previous polling has shown a more even split on that issue. And then the other thing, uh, which it's interesting because we've talked on this podcast before about the um, movement to require background checks, 90% um, of the people polled of the Ohioans polled uh, by Quinnipiac support universal background checks. And among gun owners, it was 87%. So that's quite overwhelming. So even though there's this effort to put it on the ballot, we can expect our our legislators who are very reactive <laughs> to the wishes of the voters to immediately uh, implement this without making us go to the trouble of putting it on the ballot, right? Uh, yes, Chris. And you believe in unicorns too, right? <laughs> Lastly, Jane, we had a story about a traffic camera battle in the southern part of the state. I thought that the traffic camera arguments were all over, but I guess not. No, this is never going to end, I think. Um, everybody loves this fight. Anybody who drives and has received a camera ticket probably loves this fight. But there's a little village called New Richmond in Claremont County in uh, southwest Ohio. And um, former Ohio Attorney General Mark Dan, who's in private practice, uh, has filed a lawsuit against that village because they uh, installed traffic cameras even though ODOT told them they shouldn't. Uh, it's on, a, uh, I, th I believe, a federal highway, US 52, that runs through there, and they say it's, there's a lot of accidents that occur there, and so they felt they had an, uh, you know, the local right to do this, to regulate their safety. So, um, but, but but isn't there a law on the books now that if if you use traffic cameras and you collect money, the legislature reduces the amount of money that they send to you? By right, the same that amount? was just recently passed, and in fact, I believe the village has suspended this program because of that. And while other legal issues, there's there are still other legal cases being sorted out. So I believe it's on hold for now, anyway. It's amazing how, how many different small-town governments are fighting to use these cameras in the face of overwhelming popular discontent and legislative efforts to, to stop them. You would think that eventually this would just die out. The people don't want them, and the legislature doesn't want them. Why is anybody still trying? Right. Well, you know, there's a home rule argument here, too. There's a home rule argument. You can also <laughs> say it's it's not about safety. It's not about anything but lining the pockets of uh, 
of townships and villages that have major highways in them. We've been discussing the news on this week in the CLE. Coming up next is Mark Bona to talk about a big anniversary for wine lovers in Ohio. Lakewood Together, powered by Cleveland.com, is an exciting new approach to covering the vibrant city of Lakewood. Receive daily updates on businesses, elections, construction projects, and more. I'm Cleveland.com's Emily Bamforth, and I cut through the chatter to bring you the most relevant information about your town, answering your questions or investigating the online buzz. The most important part of Lakewood Together is that we're starting a conversation about what you want to talk about. All you have to do is text back. We're in the final segment of this episode of This Week in the CLE. I'm Chris Quinn with our resident wine expert, Mark Bona, whose recent story about the Vintage Ohio Wine Event in Lake County is delicious reading. It's the 25th year for the festival that, when it began, was not even assured of finishing its first edition as it was breaking the law. How did that work out, Mark? Well, it's kind of funny because uh, Daniela Winchell, who is the executive director of the Ohio Wine Producers Association, she and her organizers really wanted to do a festival. They got together. They did it. They chose, after looking at a lot of places, chose Lake Metro Park's Farm Park in Kirtland, and they had this festival, and it, for a first-time fest, it was great. They drew 11,000 people. There was just one thing they didn't realize at the time. There was no Sunday liquor allowed in the township when they when they started this. So the first order of business immediately after they had the initial fest was to create legislation to make it legal, and, and they did. They That basically was coming up with a permit that was state-approved that that would allow wineries to sell sealed containers to go, uh, whose responsibility the open containers law uh, would would affect and so forth and so on. I don't know if people realize, but there's a there are a ton of laws on the books in Ohio and in every state about alcohol. The most recent change came a few years ago when, and I think it's one of the smartest changes uh, that has been enacted. It used to be if you went to a restaurant and bought a bottle of wine, you had to finish it or leave it if you didn't finish it. Now. The cork is put on it if you want to take it home, and a special seal will will seal, uh, basically tape, will seal the bottle. You keep it in the furthest point in your car away from the driver, and you can take it home. This is smart. It encourages more people to to drink, to, to buy bottles, but they won't force themselves to finish the bottle. So, so they were illegal. They weren't allowed to do what they're doing. The police let it go. They, yeah, I don't think they were. I think they were big, bigger fish for the for the cops to fry at the time. So you talk a good bit in your story about how finally Ohio is transitioning from its traditional affinity for sweet wines to dry wines like Pinot Noirs. And that's dependent a good bit on the ability to grow the right grapes. Ohio doesn't have the kind of climate you normally see for that, like we have in Northern California or France. So how well do the grapes needed for the drier wines grow in Ohio? Yeah, this is a good question because it really comes down to to knowing your to knowing your climate. If you're a winemaker, if you're a winery owner, you really are, number one, you're a farmer. And number two, you have to be a little bit of a scientist and you really have to be a weather geek to, to get into this and to make quality wine. So different varietals require different climates. Uh, California for now has some very interesting climates going on because they have a lot of microclimates. We, of course, have what we have here in Northeast Ohio, but certain varietals do grow well here. Um, Cab Frank does well in colder climates. 
You're seeing a lot of that in uh, more of that in this region and in upstate New York, which is not far from here. They have an exploding wine industry. Uh, Chardonnay is different. Chardonnay likes the microclimate. They Chardonnay is uh, likes coolness in the morning and then a little heat in the afternoon. Cabernet Sauvignon can withstand cold temps. It really comes down to to one thing, and that's you need to understand the you need to grow the grapes that your climate is conducive to. This is not a time to get creative uh, when it comes to growing. Growing grapes. Um, it, it, somebody here making Gewürztraminer and Pinot Grigio, great idea. Two very, very different white wines. They do very well in this climate. So it, again, it really comes down to stick to your wheelhouse if you're a, a grape grower. Don't try to grow something that it, you, if we if you fight Mother Nature, you're going to lose. That's what it always will come down to. So every region that produces wine likes to think it's producing great wine. You drive through Michigan, there's billboards everywhere about Michigan wine. You talk about New York. You've tasted some of the best wines on the planet in your job and in your life. Do you think there are Ohio wines that that really do compare well to the finest wines you've been drinking? This is a tough question, but something happened last year that that Daniela Winchell of the Ohio Wine Producers Association told me that I thought was fascinating and very much an under-the-radar story. Uh, Several of the wineries in the area, several of the wines, local wines from Northeast Ohio, were sent to James Suckling. Now, Suckling holds one of the few but very well-established and regarded wine rating systems. He took a, a hard look at these wines, and he rated them across the board very, very well. The lowest score he assessed to anyone was an 88. That's uh, that's very, very good. They went up from there. These were different varietals from different wineries. It wasn't just like one winery or several sending all of, okay, Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Sauvignon is our bread and butter. No. They sent a bunch of different ones. We had a Gewurz going out there, a Cab Sauv, and several others. So that was a really positive type of um, natural reaction, very organic, so to speak, because Suckling doesn't have, there's no skin off his nose to slam those wines. So he gave them all a very good review. The other thing I would say to answer the question is, I've read several stories in the last 15 years that, again, when you're talking about wine, you have to talk about weather. Climate change is really affecting uh, wine regions on the entire planet. And in our generation, this is kind of a radical thing to say, but California is going to become more passe with their wineries. Oregon and Washington have been getting better and will continue to improve with their wines. Uh, if you draw a line across the, the country, you're going to get a similar climate in upstate New York. That industry is absolutely exploding almost almost too much. I mean, it's actually getting crowded in the Finger Lakes at this point. But if you draw that latitude line across, what are you crossing? Northeast Ohio. So I think the, 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 the wines in this region region are good and getting better and i think at some point they will compare to the best in the country in the world you you regularly go to the finger lakes for wine wine tours and and you've been doing it for years you do really see a day in the not distant future where you could have a similar experience in in our region Absolutely. I really do. I mean, this has been something that people have talked about for the last 15 years. And I'm seeing the Ohio wines are probably 15 to 20 years behind the Finger Lakes wines. But again, it's coming down to they know what they can grow. They've established that. And then they're, they're, they're sticking with that and they're doing a great job. All right. So this is the 25th rendition of Vintage Ohio. 
for for people who want to go, what's your recommendation for them on how they can sample the best of Ohio? Is there a strategy you would offer? Yeah, there's there's three things I I always recommend for all large scale beer or wine tasting. Uh, the first is this is an obvious one, but it's important to to mention right off the bat. The first is to drink water and stay hydrated. It seems obvious, but I really need to point that out. I think organizers need to make sure that there's enough water for people, and you need to be conscious of that. The second thing is, if you see a wine that you've had with friends out, uh, wine is all about experiences. A lot of it is. And you remember, I had this with a friend. We had this over a meal. We had this on the patio. It was fantastic. Or if you see a wine you buy regularly or occasionally and really like, I've got an idea. Don't buy it. I mean, it, it's you know what it tastes like. Use this opportunity to try something new. And, and the third thing really kind of piggybacks on that. This is the time to try things that you don't know about or maybe haven't even heard about. Large-scale tastings, this is the best thing about them. They serve as a wonderful opportunity to try new things without having to take a flyer on a $16 glass of wine at a restaurant. I'm a huge, huge proponent that I think fine restaurants Everyone should be serving flights of craft beer and flights of wines, whether the restaurant creates them or whether they allow the customer to create them. You can try just simple sips of, of, of wines, things you don't know about. What do you have to lose for three ounces of, of a drink? It's much better than, than taking a flyer and something that you may hate and then really walk away with a, with a, a bad taste in your mouth and, and your wallet, so to speak. But th- those would be my recommendations of the stay hydrated, try something new. Um, don't be afraid. Just just try new things and things you haven't heard of. All right. Check out Mark's story about Vintage Ohio on Cleveland.com for details on how you can go. Cheers to Mark and everyone else who joined the discussion. This Week in the CLE is produced almost every Thursday, although we'll be taking our last break of summer next week, returning August 15th. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode. 